Independent Business Podcast is brought to you by HoneyBook, the all-in-one platform for anyone with clients. Book clients, manage projects, and get paid faster all with HoneyBook. You can use the code podcast to get 20% off your brand new account and let business flow your way. Welcome back to the Independent Business Podcast. Today's episode is gold. If you are someone that has one stream of revenue that is the primary source that feeds your bottom line in your business, or if you're someone who's added additional revenue streams and is curious about what that looks like behind the scenes of somebody else's business, you are in for a treat. Today, we are talking about the creator economy. We are talking about the future of work. We are digging into the conditioning that so many of us have been taught about W-2 work and having a full-time job. And we're even getting as detailed into the minutia of talking about cash flow and like I mentioned, revenue streams and how all of this plays into the future that we are all facing in regards to economic uncertainty and changes that are beyond our control. I'm sitting down with an extraordinary human being, the one and only Jay Klaus. Jay is the founder of Creator Science, which helps you to become a smarter creator. He previously led the community experience team for Pat Flynn and Smart Passive Income, designing their paid membership community and cohort-based course programs. Jay is amazing. I was on his podcast about three years ago, and I've been following his journey along the way. We're going to talk about how he brought in over $300,000 in revenue last year and what it took to get there, some eye-opening mindset shifts, but also the nitty-gritty of where that money comes from and what his revenue streams look like and how many he even has and all of that in today's episode. You're not going to want to miss it. Hey, everyone. This is your host, Natalie Frank, and you're listening to the Independent Business Podcast. More people than ever are working for themselves and building profitable businesses in the process. So on this show, I sit down with some of the most influential authors, entrepreneurs, and creators to break down the science of self-made success so that you can achieve it too. Hey, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Excited to be here, Natalie. I told you off air, but very jealous of your studio setup. It's beautiful. I know. Well, I, and I admitted off air, you know, my Airbnb that I rented for a tiny bit of quiet in the chaos with two toddlers that is my home. So I'm also enjoying it this week. <laughs> uh, a little bit more, you know, relaxation for my uh, headspace to get to get rolling into the podcast. Thank you, though. And I, I want to say before we dive in, I have been a huge fan of yours for a very long time. I had the honor to be a guest on your podcast. I think about I looked I tried to look and see I think it was like three years ago. Has it been that long? It's possible. It's it's probably been more it, than two years. It, yeah, it's definitely more than two. I think it's three. Uh, and at the time, I'll never forget. I you know hopped on your podcast. We did an interview together, and I got off that interview, and I thought to myself, "Wow, that was one of the best conversations I've ever had on a podcast." The amount of you know intention and preparation, and you are somebody that. Like you're, when I talk about being an iceberg, you're an iceberg, Jay. Like what people see on the surface is extraordinary, mm. but the amount of hard work you have going into everything that you produce and you share externally, it shows, right? I do I a lot that. of, I've done a lot of interviews, but I can tell. And so I got off and I was like, ooh, all right, that's a new standard for me. Like it set a standard. And we joked even before hopping on, I was like, I look at all the content you're creating, how you lead, how you cultivate community, the way that you show up. And for me, you're pushing boundaries and setting new standards. And it inspired so many. But before we get into all the awesome things you're doing today, I would love to hear from you, what was your journey like into becoming a creator and building this community of creators and equipping kind of the future of work with the tools that they need to succeed? How did you get here? Well, I started in startups. 
I, I co-founded a software company in 2014, and we did kind of the typical fundraising accelerator path. Uh, we had an exit. The company was sold in late 2015, I believe. And that was a crazy wild ride. And it was exhausting. And I didn't have another idea that I wanted to do. So I took a, a job at a venture-backed healthcare startup in product and really didn't like having a boss. So mm. I'm totally honest. Just really had a hard time adjusting to that. And so we're getting to be about a year in at that company. And I was thinking to myself, I really feel like I need to get out of here and do something else. But I hadn't figured out what that looked like yet. We had a company leadership meeting. And the company, it's a startup company. They're basically like, hey, we're completely moving in this new direction. And Jay, the product you've been overseeing, we're actually going to deprioritize that. And you're going to start leading this product over here. Mm. And I, I just like had this feeling where I was like, oh, this is the moment. This is like the moment when I should go. Because like I don't want to start something new and and then have to transition to somebody else. Like I should just go now. So I told him, I said, well, I'll, I'll give you like up to six weeks if you want, because I think we have about six weeks of work that our dev team still needs to do. And they said, well, you're going to move tomorrow. So you can just, you know, clean out your desk and we'll pay you out two weeks and that'll be that. So like in a span of 48 hours, I went from thinking I'm probably going to leave sometime in the next couple of months to I'm out. I have no responsibilities and no plan. <laughs> so. You know, I spent the first month kind of figuring out what I want to do. And I started doing some freelancing, which I didn't have the term for that at the time. But I was like, I bet I can get somebody to pay me something to do something else. And that was true. I started doing things like email marketing and building WordPress websites. I even had one guy who paid me to name his startup. That was a really fun project. But then I started facilitating mastermind groups was essentially the business that I started was I started putting together these groups of five I would do a cohort of like 15 to 20 people at a time. And again, we didn't really have these words like masterminds were around, but we didn't talk about cohort based courses. We didn't talk about even online community that much in 2017. Like we were using Slack. I had to teach people how to download and use Zoom. And so I was doing a lot of the things that a lot of people are doing today in 2017. And the, the outcome of that was creating an online community. And that community was... Uh, acquired and absorbed into Pat Flynn's smart passive income community. And, you know, I've just been kind of chugging along the whole time, learning a little bit more about the online creator business model year after year, a lot of happy accidents, uh, a couple lucky breaks and just like consistent hard work. I'm telling you iceberg. I called it. I called it. But <laughs> speaking of hard work, so you've done a lot to get to this point. And you've had success. I've been fo I mean, a lot of success. I mean, beyond even selling the start. I mean, just like even in the last six, 12 months as I've been following your journey, you know, you've had a lot of income success. You've shared about that really transparently. You are somebody that practices what you preach around just being open and trying to kind of uplift and empower all creators, right, in their journey. And you've shared a little bit. I, I believe you had set a goal for, we're talking last year, rewinding a little bit, for a quarter of a million, and then you thought 300,000, and then you almost hit what? Where did you end up last year, 2022? We ended up at, I think, 338. So it wasn't quite 350,000. But yeah, there was, there was a moment where it was, I think, the end of September, and right. we were at 225. I say we, but <laughs> the royal we of my company. 
we were at 225,000 and I thought to myself, wow, if I can average $25,000 per month for the next three months, I can break $300,000 this year. That would be crazy. And then we blew past it. So that was incredible. And, you know, we're sitting here recording this in February. February has been far and away my best month, like almost 2x my previous highest month. So it's it's been wild for the last few months. But, you know, it's, it's also spiky sometimes. Like it's not right. just a completely clean upwards trajectory. Like you have great months and then you inevitably like don't hit that same mark the next month. And so I'm already mentally and emotionally preparing myself because I know this month was a unique month. I do right. not expect and really don't even see a path where I would have the same financial success in March as I did this February. So that impacts, you know, how I prepare myself emotionally. It impacts how I prepare the business financially. You know, what am I doing with those funds? But, you know, all of that success, it's great to celebrate and highlight those things. But I do want to call out also that it's not a perfect, flawless curve up into the right forever. Like you zoom out and the trend is up into the right, but there are plenty of peaks and valleys, you know, all along the way. Let's talk about that. Let's dig into that for a second. So people see the peaks, right? People see the highlight reel. They see what uh, we put out into the world, but the valleys are often left off of, right? The the public uh, publicly shared spaces. It's kind of, we tuck it into the dark corner. And I think of it like the dog hair tumbleweeds that you would find right now in my living room if you looked closely enough. But in, in the case of building your business, you have been more transparent about those about those valleys. You have been transparent about those learnings. In getting to the point where you did, you know, over $300,000 last year, what were some of those hurdles, those valleys, those lessons learned that, you know, if somebody is stepping into, you know, starting an independent business, maybe scaling or growing an independent business that they should know up front, that, they, that you would prefer they don't make that mistake themselves or, um, that you kind of look back on and you're like, whew, man, I, that really taught me something. I feel like my valleys last year weren't as painful as the valleys early on in, in the business. So I, I might want to talk about those instead because Let's do the, it. the mistakes are a little bit different. Early on, the big mistakes that I made were all related to budgeting and cash flow. Mm. Because, you know, I was doing these mastermind programs. They were 12-week programs. And I had figured out the math so that, okay, if I charge this price, which I believe was $400 at the start, if I charge $400 and get 15 people to buy that, that should pay my rent and my expenses for the three months that this program runs. I can just keep doing that. Almost. That doesn't take into account taxes. It also doesn't take into account any type of savings. It also doesn't take into account uh, seasonality. Because what I learned was I really had to plan out my calendar of programming for the year because I finished one of these 12 week programs in October of 2017. And I realized I am not going to be able to get 15 people to join a program that runs through Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Like it would just be a mess. So suddenly I had three months where there was not going to be that income and I hadn't planned or saved for that. So that was like the real pain that I felt uh, early on in the business that really taught me that I need to have a clear handle on what it costs for me to exist, even beyond my expenses, but things like uh, taxes and ideally uh, some savings, you know, because you want to be building towards something. And I need to have a clear understanding of how cash is going to flow into the business to cover those 
you know, savings and expense goals. That was the really painful thing that I try to share with as many people as I can because people don't often think about like the accounting and the, re- the reporting and the cash flow side of things. And they go through these feast and famine cycles of freelancing and they're not thinking about, oh, I had a really great month. I should put some of that away for the bad month that might be coming. <laughs> they just think I have more that I can spend. And it, it makes a huge difference. A lot of service-based businesses experienced even those who had been doing this for a very long time experienced that same panic moment at the start of 2020. And I remember these conversations happening because in that business model, again, like looking from kind of maybe more of a digital creator model to let's say like a service-based independent business model, you can project out similar to like running a mastermind. You can sort of project out and say, okay, I see the contracts. I can see how things are going, but it was as if in a matter of a week, your entire roadmap for the year was just wiped off, mm-hmm. just wiped, gone. And I remember in that moment, a lot of folks who had felt very comfortable with the seasonality of their business, they had learned their cash flow, but the savings side, the emergency fund side, that hadn't been established. And so I think, you know, even, you know, in year one, when you're getting started, you're right. You get into it because you're passionate about something. You want to do something. You have that realization and you're craving something. If it's freedom, it could be financial, creative. You don't want a boss. You, you know, want to make more money, whatever it is. And then you actually get into the operationalizing of that idea and turning it into your profit. And you just start to realize, okay, there's a lot I didn't know. There's a lot I didn't realize, right? When a a check for $1,000 comes in, that's not $1,000 I get to take home and pay my bills with, right? It starts getting immediately dissected down into taxes and all sorts of expenses, things like that. And then even then, you can be five years in and something happens. 2020 was a major wake-up call for a lot of us. But also, you know, it could be illness. It could be you have a kid. You know, you find out you're having a kid. Like, there are so many things you don't foresee. And, you know, we live in a country where all of the infrastructure has been built for W-2 work and corporate employees and perhaps not so much for creators, for independent businesses, which I'm hoping we can change. I'm hoping folks like you and I can bring more awareness to the future of work in this growing economy. But I'm curious to know, you know, you mentioned some of these major lessons in the beginning. As you grew, do you feel as though, you know, you were able to like make the mistake once, learn from it, and then discover, like build upon your knowledge base and the, the lessons changed, like you mentioned? Or was yes. it something where, yeah. Okay. So tell me more about as you scaled, you know, what were some of those lessons or those learnings that you had as you scaled? Because a lot of people think once I get through that first year, I learn what I need to know. And then, you know what? I'm done. I don't have to innovate. I don't have to keep mm. learning. I don't have to stay curious. But I'm curious to know, yeah, for you, what was that like? I think that this, is, this itself is a skill. Like I think about this in terms of efficiency. I want my experiences to be efficient in that I get the most out of them that I can so that I don't need to experience the same thing twice to learn it, you know? Um, I think efficiency applies to a lot of areas of business, but in terms of, you know, growing and improving, I'm actually doing a, a, a YouTube video about this now, which by the time this airs, I'm sure is actually live on my channel. And it's talking about the the advice of being consistent mm-hmm. and why that's dangerous and misguides a lot of people. Because people hear be consistent and they think that means, okay, I need to publish my thing every week or maybe every day. They, they think that consistency means a fast-paced schedule of how often they should publish. 
But really to me, consistency applies to things like, are you creating a consistent experience when people interact with you in your work? Are you consistently providing value when you do show up? Are you consistently improving? Because if you're not, then it, it's very hard to have status quo in mm. anything. You know, So if you're not improving, chances are you're probably getting worse and you're probably losing attention, you're probably losing people. So it's really, really important to continue to build onto things over and over and over. You know, we were just talking about budgeting and cash flow. One of the best things that I did for my business was implement profit first and open up separate bank accounts for the different uh, parts of my business that were funded through the profit first allocation process. That was kind of a pain to set up, but now like I interact with that system twice a month and it takes maybe 10 minutes each time, you know? So building your own business, whether it's uh, a service-based business or a creator-based business, it's a lot of incremental foundational improvements that allow you to allocate more and more time to the creative work that, you know, goes out to the world. And it's, it, it just takes time. It, it takes time that you can compress things. You can get better at that. You can get help and have people walk you through how to do things the most uh, impactful and efficient way. But there's still some level of time that it's just going to take, you know, you, you need to look at this whole venture as a long-term experience. And you need to realize that you can either have the mindset that time is working against you or time is working for you. And I like to think that time is working for you if you're planning for the long term. And, you know, you get a few years in, you have these systems built, and suddenly things just feel a lot easier. You know, I tell people all the time who are just getting started, this is probably the hardest it's going to be. <laughs> like It gets a little bit easier all the time, in my experience. I know there are, there are yeah. unforeseen circumstances that pop up and life happens and things throw you curveballs. But from a from a business maturity and systems and even audience perspective, generally things get easier. Right. I'd even take a step and say technology too. I mean, yeah. the way that I had to run a business a decade and a half ago when I started, my first, truly like my first small business when I started, we're not counting lemonade stand days. You know, the amount of work I had to do manually, the amount of work that, you know, took twice, three times as long as it does now, not just because of the skill sets gained, right, and the experience mm -hmm. gained, but because of the technological changes that have happened yeah. in that decade and a half, you know, we're, we're hearing about things like, you know, chat GPT hitting 100 million monthly active users in two months, becoming, you know, the fastest growing, fastest growing in history. You know, TikTok took nine months. Instagram took two and a half years to hit that same metric. These, these new technologies that are emerging are starting to change the landscape, they're also, though, really disrupting the way that we work, not just independents and creators, but the big we, like all humankind. I'm curious to know, taking into account technology, your experience and you know, growing multiple different types of businesses over the years, what do you see is the like as the future of work? What do you see, you know, for creators not just today but going forward? Do you see it getting easier to become a creator and to build a business like the one that you've built? Do you see it actually becoming harder because of, you know, a more saturated landscape or uh, more challenging because of AI? Is that going to replace us? Like I'm I'd love to just dig into your mind a little bit as you look forward and project out and you and you do that zooming that you've talked about. <laughs> 
you know, there, there are warring parts of my mind on this. There's the very cynical part of me, and then there's the optimistic part of me. And, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So I'm constantly, you know, on some sort of pendulum swing between the two because the pessimistic or cynical side of me thinks that a lot of it's going to come down to where you live and the culture of your society. Because I could see certain countries or cities in the world who look at this advancement of technology and say, this is great. We're going to set up the system so that people don't work in order to have the resources to live. We've right. got, we've got that taken care of and that would be pretty awesome. Uh, because you know, I think a lot of people who strive for financial independence, what they actually want is creative independence. When they get financial independence, what do they do? They spend their time doing things that they want to do to creatively express themselves. So what people really want is creative independence. They just feel like financial independence is the only way to gain that. And I think advances in technology could give people financial independence if societally and culturally, that's what we agreed we wanted to do. But not all countries are going to do that. I don't think that the United States would do that. Correct. And so, you know, I, I see the opportunity for less work if you live in a place that values that or are able to set up a system for yourself that enables that. I feel like I'm in a privileged position now where because I've been building a business for six years, I'm going to be able to reap the benefits of these new things. And people who are doing a lot of client services where tools are getting better and better, I would be nervous in that situation. I really would. Now, I think that we're going to see a lot of creation of new roles. Like a lot of these tools require some input still, some sort of prompting. There's probably going to be QA that's involved in all these things. So there will be shifting of where human intervention and creativity is needed, even with really great tools. So if I were if I were still doing a service-based business, I would be getting really good at those tools. Like I would be reserving a lot of time to learn how to do them well, to speak the language well, to understand how to work with them. Because not only does that help future-proof you, but that's also a huge area of opportunity right now. Because there's a lot of people with question marks that are retweeting threads about chat GPT who have no idea how to use it that would love somebody to come in and say, here's how we can apply this to your business and make that great. So, you know, the future is bright, the future is scary. The people who will make it out on the other side are the people who are paying attention and, and getting good at it. And hopefully, you know, as a global society, as a big we, we, we start to have the conversations around what, what is work? What do we do work for? Right, right. We've started. I know even in the state of Maryland where I'm sitting right now, there have been conversations around the four-day work week, right? There have been these initiations, these these kind of let's talk about it. And although we know you know progress is slow, I think it's an exciting time to be alive. I you reminded me as you were talking about when the iPhone first came out, and I was a photographer at the time. I was shooting weddings at that point, although very very early in my career. And I remember vividly when the iPhone came out, and all of a sudden it was as if every professional photographer was saying, "Well, we're not going to have a job." There's going to be no need for us as professional photographers because now everyone's going to have a camera in their pocket. Everyone's going to be able to take this camera out whenever they want. They don't have to hire us. And as I was watching that happen, I I kind of witnessed the thought leaders at the time go into sort of two camps, right? The one was doomsday and was 
you know, don't become a photographer or have anything to do with photography if you want a career in five to 10 years because the iPhone's going to erase us and all this visual technology that can do our jobs will erase us. And then there was this other camp that kind of said, no, 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 no. Actually, it could go the other way. If we learn to use these tools and people get more exposed to these technologies, the quality that will be demanded will increase. So as more people have cameras, we will expect better photographs. As we expect better photographs and they become more available to everyone, more accessible to the masses, right? Like we will actually crave higher quality. We will crave the human touch even more. And it's been fascinating to see that some of that was right, Mm -hmm. but also there was so much we couldn't have imagined. You know, with that iPhone being created, creators now exist. Like this entire category of income, right, generation, and the future of work has shifted so dramatically because with that phone then became, you know, social media platforms kind of had this ability to grow and, and to expand. And with that, this need for more content. And as marketing shifted, there's been so many changes that came from that one moment. And so I, I think we're kind of living in a similar a similar era where AI is, you know, starting to become more accessible. It's all, it's been there for a while. People have had access for a very, very long time. It's getting better, right? But now it's becoming increasingly accessible to the everyday human with something like, you know, OpenAI, ChatGPT. And it reminds me of the iPhone moment. And so I I think, I think there, there's an opportunity here to, yeah, be cautious. And, you know, I love how you said there's the skeptic side of me. There's the optimistic side of me and find, find a route in the middle where you can actually learn these tools and I'm curious to know like what technology as a creator do you lean on both AI and then just general technology what are you using in your business is there anything for you know an independent business owner that you're like look this is a must-have this is something new I've started using this is something I thought I needed but I don't I'm so curious to know what the behind the scenes behind the curtain looks like at this point it's mostly notion actually most of what I do is in Notion from yeah. uh, task management. That was easy to move over, but also content planning and everything in between. All my notes are in there. So I've, a lot of the improvements that I've made over the last year is improving my Notion hygiene <laughs> so that things are a little bit more clean and efficient and easy to find and and tied together into single databases that are easy to be searched and related a lot of notion and then you have the actual production tools things like riverside for the podcast things like my website i use ghost for that and then there's file sharing you know i use dropbox mostly to work with my team on that and slack to communicate with them and like really that's that's about it like of course there's stuff in the middle but nothing that's all that surprising it's a lot of organizing and planning in notion producing with whatever tools help for producing uh, sharing and communicating. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. The simplicity side of it, I think it can feel overwhelming, but when you lay it out like that, it's like, Oh yeah. I mean, attainable. I was just doing my bookkeeping today and I pay for a lot of subscriptions. So there's like a lot of things in there, you know, from Photoshop to hype fury with Twitter and like all kinds of little bitty things, but those aren't really important. They're just things that I found save me an incremental amount of time in the production of certain processes. And I judge that to be worth, you know, $12 a month. <laughs> yeah. So I, I yeah. do have a lot of software and it, it creeps up a little bit every month. And I go and I cull some of it, stuff that I'm not actually using. But at the core, you know, it's, it's really planning, production, collaboration, and communication. Yeah, that's awesome. Pivoting a little bit here from tech 
into your thoughts on UGC as a whole, user-generated content. Earlier in the beginning of this year, I shared my own hot take on this, and I really want to get into it with you and hear a little bit of, of your thoughts on the matter. And my hot take was this. We are entering a new era where we will see the decline of the influencer and the rise of the UGC content creator. Just my take. And it's a hot take. It's not one everyone would agree with. And I define them as, and I'll explain because I think it can be easy to be like, well, wait, what's the difference? An influencer relies on their own platform size at scale. However, there's a little bit of that crossover. Some creators do as well. But the ability for someone to actually create content for other brands, regardless of their platform size, right? Like their actual creative ability is what drives their revenue. Whereas as an influencer, it could be your creative ability, but for the most part, it's you, right? Like you are the product versus your creativity is the product and your ability to serve a company on the UGC side is the uh, kind of offering that you have. I'd be curious to know for you, like, is that something that you see happening also? Is it something you disagree with? Do you define these two sort of perspectives differently? I'd love to know. I'm so curious. Let me start by saying, I don't think I've ever actually used the term UGC. And so I'm okay. reflecting right now and reacting. Why is that? Because I'm aware of it. So right. why don't I talk about it? And I think it's because when I think about creators, and that's the lens that I use for everything. That's the terminology that I've started using and that I lean into. But even the word creator is pretty huge in, in who, that, who that is. And I look at the creator landscape and I see essentially a Venn diagram between people who are focused on more entertainment-based content and people who are focused on more education-based content. And of course, there's an overlap there. But my world is the creator educators, is uh, what I call them. And I don't think UGC as part of the revenue model is very common over there. Because the advice that I give most creators is, I think your revenue model has indirect revenue and it has direct revenue. And I classify things that require a third party as indirect. And so okay. most sponsorship I see as indirect revenue. And that's great when the sun is shining and you can make hay over there and you have that opportunity. But I try not to encourage people to build their business on it because it, it, it can dry up. It can go away from macroeconomic Correct. things out of your control. It's not all that different than the, the 2020 moment we saw in services. We, I saw a very similar impact on the sponsorship I had lined up for the launch of my show, which happened in March of 2020. That sponsorship didn't happen. Right. And I remembered that. <laughs> you know, that's something that I think about. And you, you have a more resilient business when you're relying on direct means of revenue, meaning that your customers are your audience and there's not a third party in that transaction. So again, I, I don't think that there's any problem with having that as part of the part of your revenue model. I think it's great to diversify your revenue model when you have the opportunity and you see that there are easy ways to, to tack on. So in your definition, as I'm thinking, reflecting on this, I could see that. I mean, I, I do think that there will always be sponsorship opportunities for influencers with large platforms because there is still so much money wrapped up in television and radio that hasn't wised up and moved over and you know these these large accounts are essentially 
you know, the easy button spend for that same type of revenue. Do I also see people getting a little bit more sophisticated and understanding that they can get more bang for their buck with an aggregation of smaller creators who have an engaged audience? Absolutely. It takes more work. It takes more sophistication, but definitely opportunity there. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there will be technology that facilitates that aggregation of smaller UGC creators for brands who want to put a lot of spend into something. But it's it's challenging for brands who have a large amount of spend to deploy that to smaller groups because they need large reach numbers for it to make sense. And that means a lot of UGC creators. So there needs to be some sort of marketplace, you know, in the middle making that market. I really love what you said, though, about direct revenue versus indirect. It's something that, you know, as a lot of our listeners have service-based businesses, they're thinking, so when I say like influencer, UGC, for them, that's an indirect, it's an additional aspect to their potential business, but they do, you know, work primarily with direct contract-based work. Uh, Similar, but slightly different to how you define creator economy. Although there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap or growth into like we'll see a lot of service based business owners that you know build a very 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 profitable uh, service based business and then they start to add on education for example to help train the next generation they see gaps and they're like oh we got to fix this we have to teach so that we can kind of raise the tide a little bit and you know equip kind of future folks that do what I do in a way that they can do it better and they'll kind of move more into that creator educator landscape. When you look at the layout of a healthy, you know, revenue generating business in your world, first of all, how many revenue streams are we talking here? Because I do think a lot of folks in my world fall into the trap of thinking one revenue stream is it. I mean, truly, like that's sure. that's how they generate. How many revenue streams, you know, do you have? How many do you see other creators having? Is there a sweet spot? Is there a great number? And then what percentage of that is direct and indirect? I would love to kind of understand, you know, what's that formula into the self-made success equation that that creates a sustainable and resilient revenue model in your business? These are great questions. I keep good records. So I actually have pretty accurate answers for most of these things. So I'll use, I'll use my own business as kind of a benchmark, but know that this is one example and there are lots of different ways you could do this. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So in 2022, I had 41 separate income sources. 26 of those were affiliate partners. So you're really talking about 16 different sources, you know, and of those 26 affiliate partners, three of them were about 80% of my affiliate revenue. So I break down things into buckets and I believe it's six buckets, seven buckets, but only six of them were significant that I count as revenue streams from last year. I had memberships, digital products, sponsorship, royalties, affiliate income, patronage, and services. Seven. Patronage was very small. Patronage was literally my buy me a coffee account where people read my email and they're like, this was great. Here's $5. So I actually cut that out of the business. So I'm down to six. The great thing about having six revenue streams is, again, I keep good records. And I looked back on my year last year and there were periods of time where revenue was incredibly consistent at a top line level. Like there would be a three to four month period where 
month over month, this was around $30,000 in top line revenue. But when you look into each of those months, some of those buckets were at like zero and some of those buckets had huge months. So it's, it's wild to look at this and say, this is actually very consistent and easy for me to project, even though the sources of income change in proportionality each month. That's the benefit of having multiple revenue streams is you start to get that effect. And then some months, everything hits and you're like, this is nuts, uh, which usually follows by a month that's kind of down. For example, the way that I track sponsorship in my business is when it actually hits my bank account, then I say, this is realized revenue for this month. And I'm counting that as revenue on my books. Most months that I book sponsorship, I don't recognize that revenue the month that it is booked. I'll probably recognize it a month or two later. So the months that are really high in terms of sponsorship revenue are not even the biggest months where like the activity that happened, like the activity to earn that happened. And it's similar in services a lot of times, because depending on your payment terms, you might have this pipeline where you sign the contract today, but you might not get paid until 60 days from now. Right. And so you, you really want to have, this is a kind of going into a cash flow discussion, but I'll try to reel it back into revenue streams. Having multiple re revenue streams is good because it makes you more resilient. However, right. it can also be kind of a distracting activity to try and build up six revenue streams all at the same time when none of them are working really strongly. Like my, my recommendation is to build a direct revenue stream, make it strong, and then start to say, okay, now what? Do I add on another direct revenue stream? Do I see that, okay, now I have the opportunity for this indirect stream of sponsorship because the audience is there. You know, I would, I would go one at a time. And again, this is where time plays in your favor is, you know, after six years, <laughs> these things start to really add up. That was a little bit of a mic drop moment from the standpoint of a couple, couple different, couple different realms. One being, again, circling back, viewing time with a mindset that it's in your favor also, acknowledging that you can't set up six slash seven revenue streams overnight. You've been doing this for years. So as you said, encouraging everyone, you know, start one at a time. Once you have that new revenue stream, grow it, build it, secure it, then open your eyes to the next thing. Um, kind of taking those incremental bites out of growing that, that overall pool. But then also, like you mentioned, having those multiple streams means that you have multiple different ways to hit those revenue goals month over month. And so as you see those fluctuations, for some people it's seasonality, for others it's just natural fluctuations based on timing and contracts or timing and sponsorships or whatever it is, right? It's, it's no longer such a critical blow to where you're going, Whew, wow, I have to make up this amount of money with my one revenue stream because something fell through and I'm really stuck. No, you have these other faucets, right? If we think about them all pouring into the same pool. But it also reminds me a little bit of a question that I got on TikTok not that long ago around, is this a terrible time to start a business? Somebody asked me, you know, with the recession, conversations around economic headwinds, is this a good or bad time to start a business? To which I answered, well, look, I think, you know, you, when you have a W-2 job, you could get laid off at any point. Your job could go away tomorrow. The project you're working on can get deprioritized like you've experienced. And that's for many people, you're only revenue stream, your W-2 job. When you start a small business, yes, there are risks. We know this. Yes, it is hard. We know this. But what I'm hearing you say is you can build a business over time with multiple streams coming in. And I would argue that is safer, perhaps with time, 
a safer path forward for financial freedom because should one stream get shut off, if you've diversified strategically over time, uh, you have the ability to grow very resiliently into the future regardless of economic climate. I'd be curious if someone were to come to you today, if a creator or someone aspiring to become a creator, a service-based business owner who is thinking about, you know, do I go full-time? I've been doing this thing on the side. I'm hearing in the news every day, doomsday, the economy's crashing, everything's going to fall apart, or people aren't sure, there's just so much uncertainty. Should I do it? Is it a bad time to start a business? Is it a good time to start a business? Is there such a thing? I want to hear Jay's take on this one. Well, we're going to have to clear the next hour because I'm getting out my soapbox now to <laughs> Do step it. on top of it. I'm really glad you bring this up because this is another cultural thing, I think. We have this conditioning to think that employment is a binary thing. You're Ooh. either employed or you're not. And we think that even being self-employed is this completely different thing. Look... You are selling some amount of your time for some compensation, whether you're employed or whether you're doing anything else. In a full-time W-2 job, you get some extra perks and you also get extra constraints. But there's really virtually no difference between a full-time W-2 job and doing client services. You know, it's how many clients do you have and what are you being paid for it? Are you getting paid benefits? Are they taking care of your taxes and putting them aside? It's, it's not different. Having a full-time W-2 job is having a full, like having one client. There's no job security. Job security is not a thing, you know, like that can go away at any time. So I do truly believe that the best job security, like my, ver my version of job security is that I feel secure. I could go get a job tomorrow if I wanted to. And it would be the highest paying job I've ever had because I've spent six years collecting a ridiculous set of skills that nobody in the job market has and a ton of insight and a ton of discipline, I would make an incredible employee if I were willing to do it. Being a creator, doing things on the side, whatever, it makes you infinitely more employable in my opinion. You know, of course, some employers will look at that and see you as a risk, maybe a flight risk. But if I'm an employer who's looking for someone that's really talented and can do the job, like right. I'm going to take that risk if you're available. So I, I do believe that one of the best things you can do is start building something that is accruing equity to you directly on the side. Equity meaning like the work you're putting in, you're not getting a paycheck and that's the end of the transaction. The work you're putting in has compounding returns over time. You know, I, I think back to when I was working in a job or people I know and they got a raise of like a couple thousand dollars per year, I'd break that down to hourly. What raise did you just get hourly for the amount of work you're doing for that company this year? It's hilariously low. Maybe I'm coming off as kind of callous in that way, but I, I just I just think we've really been conditioned to think that this is a good trade that we're making. Right. And if you're willing to to work a little bit harder and do some of the administrative work and some of the learning to get good at the administrative work, it's so much more lucrative and secure to build something of your own. What do you think made you open your mind to that possibility? Because I, I don't know about you, but did you always think you were going to be 
an independent or independent of the system? Did you like in terms of corporate work or did you stumble into that? Like what was the moment for you that you kind of realized this? Because a lot of people, you know, there is so much fear. And with that conditioning, it's like uh, I think of it like, you know, um, a sled going down a hill. If everyone keeps going down the hill in the same same positioning, you're going to get these deep rivets in the snow. And so every sled keeps, you know, yeah. goes to high school, goes to college, is told to go get the corporate job, is told to climb the career ladder, is told to then get married and have kids. And we've seen this for a very, very long time, at least, again, in, in this country and through a specific lens. Now we're seeing people take their sled and like completely go the other direction these new paths are emerging and, and we're more widely aware of it. But like for you, what was the moment you realized, okay, maybe I don't have to follow this path I've been conditioned and told is success. And you started to kind of carve out something for yourself. Well, you have to see it. Some people are are lucky that when they grow up, their parents or people close to them can model that type of life. And you know, before the internet was ubiquitous, before we had social media, like entrepreneurs were weirdos that nobody understood what they're doing and they didn't have networks to even communicate. So True. you didn't, you didn't know that there were other people doing what you're doing. You didn't connect with the other person who owned a, a, a shoe store two States over. You just wanted to build your own thing. And so you made a shoe store and you were the only person you knew who was doing this. You, you have to get exposed to it. It's like anything that you're unaware of. Like once you become aware of it, you start to say, Oh, things are different than I thought. And it's kind of confronting. And it takes a certain person to be willing to take that confronting new information and say, I'm going to change my model of how the world works. A lot of people just aren't willing to do that. And they grit their teeth and they keep walking through with their, their same narrative. You know what? That's okay. That's that like the world needs those people. And sometimes those people are happier because life is simpler and that's totally okay. But if, if you, you know, you need to be deconditioned and made aware of these things you know something that i think is really transformational for me in the last year is i became friends with marie poulin who has a business called notion mastery she's awesome she teaches people how to use notion really well i had her on the podcast she told me that notion mastery was earning forty thousand dollars per month on the podcast at that time my business was doing less than ten thousand dollars per month and i just thought to myself holy shit, that's possible right and i can't I can't imagine what that would look like in my business, but man, I'm going to strive for that. Mm. And just by having my mind open to that possibility and spending time around Marie, understanding how she thought about things, seeing that she's not fundamentally different than me, by the end of the year, my business is in the same position, you know, and, and this month I'm, I'm more than double that. So it's it's like when you're exposed to new things, you start to, even on a subconscious level, directionally move that way. Right. And I, I wish that I could decondition and deprogram people in mass to understand this. But unfortunately, we've built a lot of systems and institutions to deepen that conditioning. And, you know, there's like a philanthropic angle here that you could take. There's, you know, every time that one of the student clubs at Ohio State here in Columbus asked me to come speak, like, I take the time and do that. It's not. Right. Right. It's not financially prudent for me to do that but like i i want to help show that example to people to be like this is a different path in the snow and it's not as deep but people have done it and they've survived and it's pretty great over here actually i love that i do think once your eyes are open to the possibilities of what could be everything starts to change and i love that for you even just something as simple as like realizing somebody else was making a certain amount of revenue and you went whoo 
wait, that would be incredible if I could do that. But before that, you hadn't even, you know, kind of set your sights that high. And that that's part of what inspired a lot of this podcast, to be honest. You know, it's about the science of self-made success. It's about talking about what are all the inputs that go into your unique definition of success and and figuring it out, you know, by looking at folks who have done it in their own way, who have created an incredible business, maybe multiple businesses, and what they've taken away from it. And so with one of our final questions here, I would love to know from you, what do you think is the biggest thing that differentiates the businesses that succeed from the ones that fail? I think the businesses that succeed are willing to take in new information. They're willing to adapt and they're focused on constantly improving. Because if you're willing to take an inter- in new information and adapt and constantly improve and, you know, just continue, it's kind of inevitable. You know, you, you set up a system where your success is basically inevitable because you will be unwilling to fail in the same ways. You will have no choice but to innovate. If you're going to continue on and you're willing to learn, you will have no choice but to innovate and try new things. And, you know, at some point, numbers just play in your favor. And it's, it's just inevitable. I love the sound of that. I absolutely love the sound of that. Jay, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I have no doubt that everyone watching and listening to this will want to know more about you. We'll want to know more about the resources that you have. I am a subscriber, by the way to Creator Science. So I want to make sure you give that a huge shout out. Uh, one of the best newsletters. Please hear me out, friends. This is this is an easy yes, an easy yes. But Jay, where can our, our listeners find more about you? Where can they subscribe? Give us all, all the details as we close this out. You can find everything at creatorscience.com. My goal is to help you become a smarter creator. Even if you're just getting started on this path to being a creator, that will be a great place to start, creatorscience.com. You can find me, Jay Klaus, on whatever social media platform is your favorite. Well, there you have it. Go check out creatorscience.com. Jay, thank you so much again for joining us and everybody for tuning in. That ends our episode of the Independent Business Podcast. Everything that we've discussed today can be found at podcast.honeybook.com. Head to our website for access to show notes, relevant links, and all of the resources that you need to level up. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss our future content. Drop us a review and leave our guests some love on social. Thanks again for listening.